not a young but growing debate on the edge of analytic philosophy of perception and um, there around the turn of the millennium um, some kind of the following uh, topics began to be addressed. Um, this is a quote by William Lycan who writes, visual experience represents. It represents external objects truly or falsely as having geometrical properties, colors and various relations to other objects. It is more difficult to say whether olfactory experience represents. I have argued at length that smells do represent. What they represent first and foremost are odors, which I understand to be clouds of molecules diffusing in the air." End quote. So put someone, uh, somewhat simplified, my analysis um, concerns the question of which objects we are dealing with in smelling. My argumentation will result in these objects being just the same perceptual things as those we can see and touch and taste and so on. I am thus turning against the dominant position within the analytic or more precisely within the representationalist theory of uh, olfaction, which claims that olfactory objects are odors. Instead, I argue for odors to be defined as the olfactory qualities of things rather than uh, turning them into things themselves. In my opinion, such an odor theory, as I would call it, uh, leads to various difficulties, but I won't be able to address uh, these difficulties here today at length. Rather, I now want to shed light on an objection that's put forward by the advocates of this theory principle against assumptions such as mine, against the view that the olfactory objects could be ordinary things the source objects, as those authors often say. And uh, they say it's a certain bias um, is put forward in order to reveal um, some kind of thinking error in such, a, in such a, uh, yeah, um, argumentation like mine. The bias is that of visual centricism. Visual centricism, sorry. Although this objection is referred to by almost all older theorists, I will restrict my presentation um, to, a paper, to a paper from Dan Kefton Taylor, published last year, um, not least because he tries to be hard on phenomenology. The paper is entitled Odors, Objects and Affection and has two main aims. On the one hand, um, the odor theory is to be defended against all attempts to also allow for ordinary things to be deemed olfactory objects. Here, the author speaks of olfactory austerity. Without exception, all olfactory objects are odors, whatever the term odor may denote. On the other hand, he wants to show um, to which extent all the considerations of including normal things among the olfactory objects are visual-centrically motivated. Captain Taylor's defense of the olfactory austerity solely rests upon references to the radicality principle of epistemology. And I will only focus on the core idea of this defense shortly. So, first of all, olfactory austerity is defined as follows. Quote, henceforth, by objects I will mean concrete particulars, and by affections intentional objects, I will, I will mean that which affection represents. Olfactory austerity denies that the former are ever among the latter." End quote. 
Drawing on the already mentioned veridicality principle, Captain Taylor develops his argument to affirm his position of all factory austerity along the following lines. So I um, just um, try to get uh, some short, short sentences, um, but all are quotes from uh, this paper. So first premise would be the veridicality principle. Theories of perceptual content should not postulate widespread perceptual error. Premise two, as the transference of an odor from one object to another is commonplace, all factory experiences of transferred odors are widespread. Premise three, including um, objects in olfactory content renders non-veridical experiences of transferred odors. Premise four, by contrast, if olfactory experience represents only odors, then experiences of transferred odors are wholly veridical. And so the conclusion is, if we want our theories of olfactory content to accommodate the veridicality principle, then, Kefta Taylor says, we should affirm olfactory austerity. So much could be said about uh, this and other similar arguments. For the time being, however, I would like to limit myself to pointing out that I consider especially the strictness of the veridicality principle to be at least in need of explanation. So um, my basic idea there is that uh, I don't uh, really get the point why um, theories of perceptual content in general shouldn't postulate widespread perceptual error if there maybe could uh, some um, sensory experience that is uh, very known for uh, giving such widespread error. So uh, this is the point I would mainly criticize there. But I will uh, have another focus today, um, which is what exactly does the argument of visual centricism suggest now? And what exactly is the visual centric bias and to what extent does it lead to erroneous conclusions about the object of our olfactory perception? Unfortunately, the texts that take up this point of criticism very rarely provide explicit explanations, so we have to work with the intuitive understanding of this term that the author gives to us. Quote again by Captain Taylor. It is increasingly recognized that we will have a skewed account of perception if we try to shoehorn all our senses into the visual mold. One motivation for rejecting such visual-centric thinking about perception is the fact of widespread interactions between the senses. Experimental evidence of multimodal interactions and cross-modal links indicates that there may be no purely visual experiences to begin with. Vision may be about ordinary things such as cheese, dogs and fish, but olfaction is not. Whatever similarities are shared between the, sen between the senses, we will have the wrong view about perception's intentional objects if we generalize from vision alone." End quote. Obviously, the visual-centric bias consists in the fact that our thinking about non-visual sensory perception inevitably takes place according um, to the scheme of our visual perception. Therefore, my so-called thing theory of olfactory objects um, is based on a chimera because my understanding of objectivity has been biased and misguided by my visually dominated perceptual experiences. 
Thus, the certainty that the objects of visual perception are the ordinary things gives rise to the hasty judgment that the other objects of the senses are also these things. In fact, however, I don't find uh, things like dogs or cheese or coffee as the fundamental contents of my olfactory experience, but only the odors of these things. Quote, Captain Taylor, Granted, the coffee downstairs in the kitchen is typically brought to mind by smelling its aroma. Maybe one is brought to believe that there is coffee downstairs. Maybe one visualizes it. Maybe there is some cognitive phenomenology um, at play, but olfactory experience itself does not seem to tell. And does not seem to tell on what is um, through the door, down the stairs and around the corner to the left or right, how many paces. These are phenomenological assertions which I have provided scanned support for. They seem right to me. But all this highlights is the familiar idea that appeals to phenomenology cannot be the determining factor when it comes to specifying the contents of experience, olfactory or otherwise. They are mistaken in thinking that olfactory phenomenology has a face value to it, that it can serve as the basis for our theories of olfactory content." End quote. But isn't that an absolute consequence to exclude phenomenology from the considerations of the phenomenal content of our experiences? On what basis should a discussion of the same then take place? And what exactly is the contribution of phenomenology to the problem of visual centricism? So how or why does the reflection on phenomenological findings lead to visual centric thinking? Unfortunately, the author also remains silent on this connection. And thus it also um, remains questionable which understanding he actually has of what he calls, at least, phenomenology. In any case, it is still highly enigmatic to me what kind of phenomenological reflection it might be that makes someone believe that we can smell the distance and direction in which a thing is located. For that is already, and just stated in the notion of smelling, uh, so there is nothing for, an, for or against an argument about the objects to be smelled in it. All one can draw from the statement is the tautological certainty that um, the sense of smell, by definition, cannot experience any visual effects. But for this statement, one does not have to write essays or study the philosophy of perception. In case of doubt, I think a uh, look into the dictionary is sufficient. And of course, there would be no question then that a phenomenological approach could no longer provide us with any information about the content of such a purely olfactory experience, because such an experience could never be made, could never be made. It is an entirely abstract construct, a construct that only serves the terminological demarcation of a sensory faculty, but is unable to unfold any relevance for the concrete reality of experience. For this reality is inevitably integrated into an overall sensory context of all perceptual experiences from which abstract contemplation 
must necessarily tear it out. So the question is still left open as to where the efforts uh, for long arguments arise from if the aim of consideration should only be that olfactory experiences represent smellable features, visual experiences represent visual ones, and so on and so on. The fear of subjectivism clearly plays an important role here. As many philosophers themselves explain, the philosophical problem of olfactory perception is conceived of as a phenomenological one, um, because if, unlike seeing, olfactory perception does not encounter individu individual things, but only non-concrete states, it cannot know anything about the world it perceives. So, like the waking statue in the essay of Condillac, the sense of smell considers itself to be the object that it alone is capable of perceiving, the odor. From this setting, um, it emerges, um, from this setting emerges uh, the urgent question of how to ensure that olfaction is still exteroceptive, that the experience of odor thus represents states of the world rather than merely states of the subject. For this reason, odors are finally declared objects, either because one has not made it clear to oneself what objectivity should actually mean, or at least because one juggles with um, very different concepts of the objective. And only because there is no distinction in the representationalist third-person perspective between real and abstract experience or experiences, that is between olfactory perceptual experience and a so-called pure olfactory experience, the problem is understood as one of phenomenology. In fact, phenomenology offers solutions if one only compares a few text, uh, text passages um, that take up similar findings as the representationalist authors. Erwin Strauss, for example, in his major work The Primary World of Senses, highlights a basically visual-centric structure of the healthy perceptual consciousness. An insufficiently developed visual centrism thus expresses a pathology. In his work, however, the abstract isolation of individual senses doesn't play any particular role, neither for the, for the deduction of his findings, nor for the conclusions to be drawn for perception as a whole. Rather, Strauss, is, uh, Strauss in a typical phenomenological manner is concerned with revealing the relevant life-world consequences of this structure for philosophical thought. With a selection from a passage entitled The Spectrum of the Senses, I will try to make plausible this parallel to the findings of, of the Odo theory. Quote Strauss. In seeing, our own body is and remains somewhat strange to us. I can see my hand just as others see it. Nobody can feel my hand as I feel it. When acting, I experience my hand unseen as mine. However, I can treat it like any other object. Objectification diminishes the very essence of being mine. The idea that sensory experience must be understood by analogy with stimulation that a sensation must accompany an impulse and correspond to the cortical event leads to a distorted analysis of the content of experience. 
Sensing is no longer understood as the doing and suffering of a sentient being who is directed towards the world and affected in various ways experiences the world as well as oneself in its own bodily existence. The self-world relationship is eradicated. Qualities of, sorry, qualities of touch are likewise not my sensations as visual qualities. This is because pure sensations um, this is because as pure sensations they are lacking they all are lacking the characteristics of being me in the same way. I can experience my body as mine and myself in my bodily existence solely in an ego world relationship. As the skin is the boundary surface of the body, it is the sense of touch by which the experience of mine is fulfilled most compellingly. But no sense completely lacks the self-world relationship. So um, Strauss doesn't talk uh, much like most phenomenologists um, about smell, but uh, I think I hope this um, illustrates um, what I what I'm trying to to say or what I'm trying to uh, make attention to. Um, Although I wasn't able to find um, to uh, um, get the English version of uh, the book, so these um, quotes are from the German version, and I translated it myself. So, um, but hopefully, um, nevertheless, it uh, became clear or becomes clear how the connection between um, objectivity and distancing. Um, that is expressed here uh, is based precisely on phenomenology. Um, by describing how the senses may be differentiated not least on the basis of their specific phenomenal relationship of self and other, Strauss makes it obvious that the experience of a sensory perception as mine is always tied to a context of experience that points beyond me, which thus also experiences the world. And precisely because in seeing this phenomenal relationship reaches out farthest into the world, so the, the, um, it, is, it is mostly on the side of, of uh, the world and farthest away from the side of the subject. Um, so because vision therefore experiences the highest degree of perceptive objectivity, but not an objectivity that is fundamentally unknown to the other senses or entirely separated from them, visual centrism is not an error of thought or a mere prejudice or bias. Instead, it belongs to the structure of the perceptual consciousness of every sighted person. For the description of all sensory objects as the very same perceptual things, does not, as falsely assumed by older theory, go hand in hand with a modeling of all perception in accordance to the example of visual experience. And such uh, modeling would also have been better rejected as visual morphism, I think, than as visual centricism. But that's a whole another point. Um, instead, however, visual centricism visual centrism is actually a defining feature of our human nature and nothing could remove the philosophy of perception further 
from the maelstrom of subjectivism than the certainty that the same rose um, I just can that the same rose I just can see must also be experienced um, with my other senses in order to be considered a real rose rather than a mere imagination. So, yeah, this was it. Uh, hopefully, uh, have a lot of questions. I can uh, tell a bit more about it, but I tried to uh, bring it down and uh, put some some other facts out. So, hopefully. <laughs>